foreheads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for the completed canon of Scripture. Thank you for reminding us that it's by grace through faith that we're saved and sanctified daily. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for that evidence on a cross 2,000 years ago to make even an evening like this one a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this evening's message is a continuation of the gospel salvation and sanctification. Uh, we've had sort of a special uh, blend of concepts coming in this last week or so, just really amplifying um, some other truths that we're going to sort of close up shop on this evening. So uh, just a fair warning on this evening's message is going to require a fair amount of concentration um, because of the nature uh, and the breadth, if you would, of topics uh, where anytime you do a big picture survey like we've been doing, it requires you to concentrate in a different way. You're trying to take bits and pieces and formulate uh, a big picture. So that's what we're going to try to do this evening. So I'm just giving you a fair warning that it's going to require a certain kind of concentration. Uh, to get us started, I want to show you a, what uh, the flesh would call a paradox in Scripture. Go to uh, Philippians 2.12. Uh, and again, I use that term to describe the, res the fleshly response to Philippians 2.12 and 13. You're going to see um, something interesting here. Maybe you haven't seen it before. I hadn't spent too much time looking at it. Uh, I've been to this verse many times, of course, but not on this sort of um, angle. Philippians 2.12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I'm going to get a little bit more on that, but... Now consider the paradox. So first he says in verse 12, you know, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says in the very next verse, same sentence, for it is God who is at work in you. Well, how can that be? How can you work out your own salvation and then God's working as well? So the flesh doesn't like those kinds of things because they don't make rational sense. And that's the beauty of the supernatural spiritual life is that we have to accept things by faith. We don't rationally understand how we're doing the work and God's doing the work. Uh, one or the other really makes more sense to the flesh. So again, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Work out your salvation is something that's been coming up in our studies. It's come up in the past, of course, as well. Up here on the board, if we're to dig our heels in a little further, refers to your involvement in sanctification. You're not totally passive. It is by grace, but as I've taught you, once you're changed, you actually are an active person in this thing. Uh, in other words, God decides to change you, and then once you're changed, it really is you that is doing these things that might even produce good works. 
Uh, and we should identify with that. And that's what God wants us to identify with. That he says, I'm going to change you. I already know I can do all these things, but watch when I change you and you start doing them. That's when we bring glory to God. And so there is a notion uh, in this so-called paradox that we believers are changed to the degree, uh, and it's a continuum, that we ought to work out our own salvation. So it refers to your involvement in sanctification. Sanctification is salvation come alive in you. It is living in the gospel reality. It is realizing God's eternal love for you. You do so with fear and trembling in awe of and respect for all that he's done. He changes you, in other words. You used to be, you know, more so a brat, basically. And he changes you, and he changes your heart, and he reveals more and more things to you. And as you're humble, he gives you more faith, as Scripture says. And the more faith you have, the more fear and trembling, the more respect you have for him. All these things sort of coalesce into what we would call your sanctification. This happens daily, of course, but you are involved in this process. So again, work out your salvation refers to your involvement in sanctification. Sanctification is salvation come alive in you. It is living in the gospel reality. It is realizing God's eternal love for you. You do so with fear and trembling in awe of and respect for all that he's done. So this has been the nature of our lessons this past week. And I, your shepherd, really need you to focus on these things. And I told you it's going to require concentration. But tonight really matters uh, in the sense that we're pulling some really important things together. And so then if you've missed any lessons or have gotten behind on the books or the blogs, my exhortation is the same. I need you to finish that work. With that said, let's review some of Tuesday's lesson. And as I was listening to the lesson, I was thinking about a massage. I could use a good massage. Anybody else? No, no, no. Hint, hint. Anybody? No. Kneading. When you're in a massage, it's the thing called kneading. It's when they're, you know, they're grinding out knots and loosening up muscles and stuff like that. Jesus was never distracted from saving us. Even today, he's kneading out salvation in us. That is sanctification. That's a revelation for some people. He's needing out salvation in us. That is sanctification. We mustn't become rigid. We must relax and let him massage our souls. And I know I'm waxing a little poetic here, but just bear with it. There may be knots he has to focus on, but it's all good. Just let him do this thing in you. Just get back what he's doing. He's brought us all back to the gospel. And he's saying, you really want to understand what sanctification is? Then dwell on this. And the more you dwell on this, the more sanctified you will be. Because the more you dwell on this, the more grateful you'll be, the more likely you're to pray with fervency, the more likely you're to lay down your life for others, blah, 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 blah. The more likely you'll love me, and et cetera, et cetera. All because of the gospel. And that's the angle that he's been sort of treating this portion of this series uh, over the past couple of weeks with. He's saying, use that as your sort of vantage point. If you've ever been uh, to a masseuse before, you know that the good ones have an uncanny ability to find knots in your body that you didn't even know existed. The same goes in the spiritual life. 
the spirit will find and focus on the knots. So learn to accept it. And just, this came up on Tuesday's uh, message up here on the board. Say this to yourself and repeat it to yourself often. I don't know all the answers and I never will. You're going to have knots in you that you didn't even know were there until he decides to reveal them to you. And I, I've learned something back in my days in industry. You know, there's an old saying, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. It's like that. When he reveals something new to you, and he opens up a whole new can of worms in your soul, you're like, oh, I didn't even know that existed in me. Now there's like all this other good stuff that he can do. Um, so say that to yourself frequently. I don't know all the answers, and I never will. That's a very good thing that came up on Tuesday. One of the great lies peddled in the churches is that we can somehow have an answer for everything. I can't stand talking to people like that. I can't even, I feel like throttling people sometimes. You know what I'm saying? Those arrogant people that have an answer for everything. It's like, there's no way you have an answer for everything. Oh, I do. And they bring it to the spiritual life. Now, if it's a faith issue and they say, I just have faith in God. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about somebody who, who claims they have everything sort of doctrinally categorized and they have an answer for everything, and it's, it's like, go away. The gospel focus. We've now gone back to the very words of Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry in order to nail down what his focus actually was, given the fact that he is the giver of both the Great Commission and the Holy Spirit, our helper in it. Again, we've now gone back to the very words of Jesus Christ in His earthly ministry in order to nail down what His focus actually was, given the fact, I mean, think about it. Who gave us the directive? Who led the, quote, capital C church into the church age, even? Who opened up that way? Jesus did. He was the pioneer. And then he trained up a bunch of early pioneers to go spread it. And that's exactly what they did. So we have to go back to the root system. The root system said, this is what I'm focused on. I came to save. And that's what I want you to do. I want you to take this message, a simple message of salvation. It's about me. I'm going to hang on a cross. I'm going to be separated from my Father. I'm going to willingly do that so all of you can be saved. But there's going to be so many iterations and so many abominations against this simple truth that I need you to go out, I need you to go spread it purely, and then I need you to defend it like a tiger. I need you to go do those two things, and that's enough. We need to save some souls. Now, that brings up an interesting point, this idea of so-called spiritual maturity. It may sound like a, a natural paradox that you know I'm beating up a little bit on terminology that I've used many, many times in the pulpit, and I don't apologize for using it, the context here, because I do believe there is a certain thing called spiritual maturity, but I don't believe that people have that right. That's the whole point of all of this. I think that spiritual maturity, if you want to use that phrase, it means something, that's wonderful. It means something to me too. But what the Spirit's saying is make sure that whatever it means, even though that phrase doesn't exist in the Bible, and it doesn't, Whatever it means to you is actually accurate. And I believe that most people that talk about spiritual maturity the most, it seems, don't actually have it right. 
I think they think it's something else. So I use the phrase so-called, quote, spiritual maturity. Neither Jesus nor his disciples ever used the phrase spiritual maturity, nor were they or their ministries preoccupied with the concept of it. Scott brought this up on Tuesday evening. This was not a topic that was dwelled upon. Jesus said, you've got to be like one of these children to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven. This is not an issue of intellectualism. I have these jackasses called the Pharisees over here who I can't stand. I call them a brood of vipers, a bunch of whitewashed tombs with nothing but dead bones on the inside. That's what I think of intellectualism and what it's done to my perfect law, which predates all of humanity. I've shown you what I think of them. But look at me with the children. That's what I want you to focus on. And so his disciples, he, Jesus, nor his disciples, they didn't focus on this concept of spiritual maturity. Neither did their ministries preoccupy themselves with it. Nor was the early church, and uh, this came up on Tuesday as well, read Acts 2, 3, 10, 17. It was all about salvation. It was all about spreading the gospel. Now, when a pastor stands behind a pulpit and challenges individuals this way, uh, there's always sort of um, fleshly kickback, let's call it that way. And so there's a couple of things that the Spirit wants to address this evening on that topic uh, to preempt anything that might come up in your own souls to spoil this beautiful thing that's happening in this ministry. So usually a statement like the one on the board is usually not enough, quote, evidence, though it should be, for the average sophomoric intellectual to change his or her mind from their pharisaical ways. So the Spirit asks to help, well, what is a mature doctrine? Or what is spiritual maturity? What is it? Does anyone here propose to understand these things fully? Before we dig any further into this, let me tell you a little parable. It's one that I made up, but hopefully it'll do its job. You live in a black and white world, literally. Think of like, you know, Schindler's List or something. Literally black and white. Just pretend you were completely colorblind and everything was black and white. So you live in a black and white world, literally. God the Father gives you a flower. The only thing in your world with any color. And He says, put this on your windowsill and I will shine light out of heaven on it and it will bloom. My spirit will water it too. Oh, and my son has ensured it's from a good seed and will have healthy roots by supplying nutrients to the soil. So please don't hinder any of these simple requests that I've made, and your flower will bloom magnificently, bringing you much peace and joy in your home, knowing that it is my creation and that I gave it to you personally. Well, your neighbors find out about your flower, each having one of their own, although some of them look fake up close. One invites themselves into your home and says, here, let me show you how to prune it. And before you can stop them, they clip a few leaves. And you wonder how 
reliable this person's, quote, advice is, given that you've seen their flower and it's pathetic, possibly even plastic. A few hours later, another neighbor invites themselves in. And you haven't learned your lesson yet, so you let them waltz right by and begin spraying your flower with a secret recipe, quote-unquote, that they claim has additional nutrients to make your flower grow even faster and more brilliantly. They tell you the spray spray was developed by a few PhDs in the lab at the university. Now, with everyone crowding around your flower, it doesn't get the sunlight it needs, and its nutrients are being mixed with man-made ones. And before you know it, your beautiful flower begins looking like your neighbor's. Sad. It was doing well, too, when they, or when you simply left it alone, left it up to the grace of God, trusting in what He, the giver, originally told you, that the Father, He, would shine light on it, His Spirit would water it, and His Son would provide it nutrients. What you've learned is that the more you stray from these simple commands... The slower your flower grows, and the dimmer it becomes. So, you decide to put a big sign on your door that says, Leave my flower alone. And before you know it, your flower, now unadulterated by man, is blooming wonderfully again. The end. Your salvation is the flower. Your sanctification is watching the flower grow by grace. You love God because He first loved you. All right, let's get back to where this started, up here on the board. So-called spiritual maturity. Neither Jesus nor His disciples ever used the phrase spiritual maturity, nor were they or their ministries preoccupied with the concept of it, nor was the early church. Acts 2, 3, 10, 17, for example. And again, the question on the table that we haven't really directly answered is, what is a mature doctrine, so to speak, and what is spiritual maturity? Before we answer that directly, let's consider something else. Some might argue that Paul prepared the church for some so-called spiritual maturity, that that's what Paul did. Because, you know, he was after Jesus, and Jesus sort of cracked the nut, so to speak, and then Paul somehow prepared the church for some greater spiritual maturity. But if one reads Paul's epistles with the gospel lens, they will inevitably see what I've been trying to teach you now for months, that Paul, the brilliant Pharisee, taught a simple gospel. So, the parable of the flower. Just like the flower and its growth is simply accomplished through God's grace, so goes the spiritual life. Intellectual striving is the antithesis of grace, and it leads to bondage, not clarity. Freedom is afforded to those with the faith of a child. It's that simple, folks. Man comes along and ruins the beautiful things. By adding to what? Why? Because it's so-called too simple. Maybe for stratification purposes. 
Paul is often unfairly characterized as a, quote, maturity doctrine teacher, yet he stated plainly time and again what his priority was, or that his priority was the gospel. He never used the term spiritual maturity. And we read Philippians 1 as an example. Go to Philippians 1.6. We'll see something interesting there. Philippians 1.6. We read the whole of Philippians 1 on Sunday. But let's focus now. Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel... You all are partakers of grace with me. So here's the steward of grace saying what? You're all partakers of grace, my mission, steward of grace. The stewardship of grace was given to me, Paul, for all of you. And what does it look like? He just said it, the defense and confirmation of the gospel. What do you think the single most... I've been thinking about this a lot this week. What do you think the single most attack on the gospel is? If you were to categorize all the attacks throughout human history, even what we read in the Bible, the number one attack, grace. Always, always, always grace. Why? The flesh hates grace. The flesh says, I need a part in this. Even if you're a goody little two-shoes, That's covert arrogance. Or you're a chess beater. That's overt arrogance. Whichever one you are, they're both arrogant. And both of them are trying to hijack God's grace. So here's the steward of grace, Paul, saying, you're partakers of this grace with me in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That's our mission. That was Jesus' mission. Jesus, my teacher, my personal teacher, says Paul, taught me to confirm and defend the gospel. In the defense and confirmation of the gospel, this sums up the nature of Paul's ministry. He fought the good fight, 2 Timothy 4.7, to preserve the gospel complete and unstained. He preached by grace through faith, Ephesians 2.8 and 9, as the linchpin of a believer's confidence in Christ. He just wanted others to know Christ. Ephesians, the whole thing. 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2 Corinthians 11.3, for example. This is what Paul's ministry was. And I believe that most people have mangled it. They've taken out the simplicity and supplanted it with complexity. By saying, well, he did this, and he said this to this person, he did that, he's talking about faith here, and he's talking about propitiation over here, and he's talking about reconciliation over here, and he's talking about you, whatever. And you miss what he's really doing. He's just saying, by grace, God is satisfied. By grace, you're now reconciled to God. You have restored friendly relationship with God, so to speak. That's propitiation and reconciliation. 
Oh my, I didn't know it was that simple. Yeah, it's that simple. It really is that simple. What people did was try to hijack grace. And when you hijack grace, God can't be satisfied. You can't be reconciled. You get it? And it's all the gospel. So you didn't sit there and pontificate about this doctrine and that doctrine and this maturity thing and that maturity. Or you can actually understand what the context of the Bible is, which is let's take this beautiful thing, the gospel, the one that our Lord and Savior died to instantiate. Huh, Greg? Where's Greg? You do that in coding anyways. He died to instantiate this thing and then said, here, here it is. Take it. Go. That's not difficult. Even a child can do that. I know. But people like to focus on the other stuff because that's the flesh. Let's read on. Philippians 1.8. So all really God's the Spirit's saying to this congregation is, listen, if you're going to use the term, the phrase, if it's going to be conceptualized, spiritual maturity, get it right. It may not be what you think it is. That's what he's saying. Philippians 1.8, For God is my witness, how, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Okay, let's read this real quick. That your love may abound still more and more in, these things are connected, in real knowledge and all discernment. In other words, love is the basis of these things for the believer. Love is the, in other words, if you truly, if you're a believer, then you have some love. I'm not going to put a stick in the mud and say it's this or that. You're going to have some love. We love because He first loved us. Your heart has changed. There's going to be some love given to you, given to that new creature, because that's all the new creature can do is love God anyways. And because that very nature now exists in a true believer, you have a certain kind of discernment, a certain knowledge of the things of God. You don't have to be a rocket scientist, though. You have to understand what the Bible actually says about knowledge and discernment when coupled in this Scripture with love, even. If you want true knowledge and true discernment, you have to have love. Because love is able to know and discern things that even an unbeliever can't understand. But should we just overcomplicate it, though? Should we just add like more stuff? Nope, 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 nope. That's the doctrine of discernment. Coupled with agape love. Coupled with knowledge. Or we can actually just read the stinking Bible. I don't mean to disrespect that. Read the Bible for what it says. (laughs) Here's a guy writing a letter to people that he loves. And saying, "I'm, I'm, I'm, I'm psyched that you have a love for God. I'm psyched that you're lockstep with me. I'm in prison, but I hear what's going on. I'm stoked. This is awesome. You don't need to be a fanatical PhD to understand what he's trying to convey to these people in love. He's saying, let's stick by our guns. Let's keep this gospel as pure as possible, as accurate as possible. And if people want to persecute us, because we are what we are in Christ and we're defending this thing, then so be it. 
But let's not go out and try to be something we're not. Let's not try to impress everyone with our language and our lofty speak and our rationalistic behavior with unbelievers nonetheless who are pearls before swine. Let's not do that game. Let's not play their game. Let's play God's game. God's game is simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. If you don't like me because I'm saved, I'm a, I'm a, I love Jesus, that's your problem. I'm not going to apologize. I'm not going to rationalize with you. I'm not going to do anything with you. Matter of fact, the Bible says don't even deal with you. Anyways, verse 10, So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You see Paul's heart there. It doesn't take rocket science to see that up here on the board what he's saying though in the defense and confirmation of the gospel this sums up the nature of paul's ministry he fought the good fight second timothy 4 7 to preserve why do you think look at all those other i mean look at the corinthians right what did he do he's always fighting with them he's like people are crazy Cut it out, right? He's always fighting them. Why? Because he didn't want them to lose sight of the one thing that matters most, which was the gospel. And how did the gospel get undermined? Like I said, not always, but most of the time, grace. Somehow grace was picked at. Somehow religion wanted to add to it. You know, uh, someone wanted to say, I'll pull it out of the equation. Always, always grace. So this sums up the nature of Paul's ministry. He fought the good fight to preserve the gospel complete and unstained. He preached by grace through faith as the linchpin of a believer's confidence even in Christ. He just wanted others to know Christ. Consider the book of Ephesians for a moment. And you've got a good study and if you've got a good study Bible, then I encourage you to read the formal intro to the book. Most study Bibles, if you've got a good one, uh, have a nice introduction to the book of Ephesians. And just so you know, this is my personal recommendation, uh, the MacArthur Study Bible, NASB, of course. If you can get your hands on one of those, get it. Wonderful introduction to Ephesians. I've also, uh, I also own multiple other Bibles. I know that some of you have the Zondervan NIV. That does a pretty good job uh, of an introduction to the book of Ephesians. Whatever the case may be, here's what I want you to know about the book of Ephesians up here on the board. Unlike some of his other epistles where he was you know, rebuking the church, the Ephesians not like that. If you read the book of Ephesians, you see something distinctly different. He's kind of relaxed. He's like, I don't have a bone to pick. Wow. Nice, given all the bones he had to pick in his life, all the fights he had to fight. So the book of Ephesians is beautiful in its own way because he, he wasn't picking a bone with the church. There wasn't any primary point of contention in view. Therefore, Paul was free to expand upon the glories of the gospel in the lives of believers. It's a magnificent treatise on what living the gospel looks like in a church that hasn't been overrun by the flesh. So this is more on the side of you know, the confirmation of the gospel. He says, I have to confirm and defend. This would be the book of Ephesians, more on the confirmation side of the gospel. And it's beautiful. You just read it and you say, geez, he's just so relaxing. He's saying, this is awesome. This is the way this is. This is the way that is. Even so, Paul's focus is no less on the gospel. 
than it was or when he was defending it. He was always in the gospel. It just depended on what was the situation, really. Um, okay. If I'm standing still and I say, God says, I've got to stand right here. And someone pulls me that way, what do I have to do? I have to pull this way, right? Like Newton's first law? Right? Bill's like, yeah. Every action, every force, opposite force type thing. Nobody? Anyways. So if, if I get pulled that way, then I have to push this way. If I get pulled that way, then I have to pull this way. My objective is to stay right here. If I'm the gospel, then it depends on the circumstance, right? If someone pushes me this way, I have to push back that way. Equal opposite force. That's all you see. If someone's standing right here and goes, let's talk about the gospel, that's Ephesians. Awesome. I don't have to push a pull? Nope. Let's just bask in the glory of God. That's the book of Ephesians. Let's read Ephesians 3.1 and a little bit more of that. Ephesians 3.1. What you see is the positive side, if you would. You know, Paul, as much as he fought, and I can relate, I think... Um, it seems the nature of just teaching the gospel nowadays um, just is met with so much resistance that most of uh, a preacher's life is defense, is like on the defensive. You, someone's pushing you and you're on your heels. And you're like, wait a minute, that's not true. Or cut it out. Or this, you know, it's constant. So it's nice once in a while, like tonight's. A prayer vigil is nice for a guy like me, and I'm not saying it's not nice for you, but it's especially nice for me personally because there's no contention. It's just us giving through prayer. But so much of the life is, you know, and if it's not this person, it's this person. If it's not this person, it's that person. If it's not that person, it's that person, right? Look at Robin up there standing up like she's all that. What she think she's doing? She didn't tell me she's going to do that before class. Right? Now i got to deal with Robin. After class, Robin, I love you, but here's the deal. I'm just kidding. She told me. Ephesians 3.1. Let's read that. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. That's why it's a mystery. It's not a big mystery. It's just that's what he calls the mystery. Because it's something new. It was a mystery to the sons of men beforehand. So, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Do you remember Paul's words, excuse me, Peter's words in the book of Acts? He says, I now know that God's not partial, that he's going to give the Spirit, he's going to save the Gentiles just like he saves his people, the Jews. It was a mindset back then that had to be dealt with. And that's part of the mystery, if you would. That's part of the gospel proper. But it's no different. It's the gospel's for everyone. Hallelujah, right? <laughs> and that's all he's saying, because guess what was going on? Oh, the gospel's not for the Gentiles. It's only for us, the Jews, because we're special. 
Wrong. Wrong. The gospel saves everyone who believes in the Son. So there you go. Not complicated, but nonetheless. Verse 6, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister. Of what? The gospel. The gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. What do you think God's grace was? Here he is, this great steward of grace in the church age, so to speak. And what's he got? It's by grace that he's even a minister of what? The gospel. Why complicate it? According to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. Again, up here on the board, the book of Ephesians, there wasn't any primary point of contention in view. Therefore, Paul was free to expand upon the glories of the gospel in the lives of believers. It's a magnificent treatise on what living the gospel looks like in a church that hasn't been overrun by the flesh. That little sidebar with Ephesians was to amplify our previous point from reading Philippians 1.7 up here on the board. We're still sort of tagged with this thing. In the defense and confirmation of the gospel, that was just a confirmation passage, if you would. This sums up the nature of Paul's ministry. He fought the good fight to preserve the gospel complete and unstained. He preached by grace through faith as the linchpin of a believer's confidence even in Christ. He just wanted others to know Christ. And when he saw others, like Ephesians, when he saw it, he said, let's rejoice. This is awesome. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Right? Be grateful. Sound familiar? First Thessalonians 5. Yeah. It's all, it's all the same. So set before us with absolute clarity is the nature of Jesus' ministry, the nature of Paul's ministry, as well as some highlights from other ministries, such as John's and Peter's. And they all are focused on preserving the gospel, protecting it, proclaiming it as lights in the world. So if we're going to understand anything about why we're still here after salvation here on earth, it's this simple fact, the Great Commission. Why are we here? The Great Commission. Is there another commission that we know of? No. I mean, we have some couple of ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper. Okay, that's cool. But what's the Great Commission? I mean, what's the, what's the ultimate goal of this? What are we doing here? Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. Why, why, why are you training up? To serve others. How? The gospel. What do you think? Your flesh is going to entice you into thinking there's more to it than that, but my dear sheep, there isn't. Remember, and this came up on Tuesday as well, very timely. Remember, God's ways are not man's ways. They are opposite, frankly. God's ways are not man's ways. You have to remember that. When your flesh is right there, it's got to be more to it than this. There's got to be more to it than this. There isn't. And your flesh goes, stop it. God's ways are not your ways. So reflect for a moment, as I did this morning even. The world rewards us handsomely for excelling in this or that. 
and it places special emphasis on personal achievement. However, the grace that Jesus personally taught Paul how to teach the church is the antithesis of how the world teaches us how to achieve. Again, the grace that Jesus personally taught Paul, because Paul is the steward of grace, right? The grace that Jesus personally taught Paul how to teach the church is the antithesis of how the world teaches us how to achieve. If we superimpose the world's way of doing things onto the spiritual life, we find ourselves striving outside of grace, which, as we've learned over the years, leads us right back into experiential bondage. Want to get into bondage as a believer? Try doing things yourself. Try doing things outside of God's grace. Try saying no thank you to His grace, which in many ways comes in the form of what? His sharing His personal desires for you. We call those commands. Here's my will for you. The greatest way to get into experiential bondage is to go, no thank you. But this is my word. This is my will for you. I'm trying to express it. That's why you have a shepherd trying to tell you these same things over and over. That's why I've written the canon of Scripture so you can see these things. No, thank you. That is the surest way to get yourself back into bondage. Think of the most extreme case, the unbeliever. I want to save you. No, thank you. That's the ultimate bondage. But even as believers, we have a dead flesh, and that thing kind of likes dead things. And so it drags us back in shackles from time to time to experiential bondage. Even still, after all that said, I told you this evening's a bit of a preemptive strike. Some might argue that the church was immature. They say, I read the Bible and I think that the the reason it was written this way is because the church was immature, especially like during Jesus' time. So the messages from Jesus and his apostles had to address the immature. And then once the gospel had been spread, whatever that implies, the church as a whole could focus itself on maturing itself. In comes the abomination of the gospel and spiritual maturity. These people suppose that once the gospel had been spread, whatever that implies, the church as a whole could focus on maturing itself. Think about it. The church nowadays can hardly get out of its own way. Many churches are filled with people that I believe they might even be saved, but they don't actually have the gospel totally ironed out in their own souls. So I'm thinking maturing has a lot more to do with getting the gospel right and then learning how to fulfill the Great Commission than it is about you being built up personally with more and more fancy doctrines and memorized scripture and what have you. You remember our lessons on that? That 
I wrote a, I wrote a um, blog called MASH about the church, the local assembly, not being the final stop for believers. This is where you fill up the gas tank. This is where you get healed again. This is where you recuperate. But the front line's out there. And what's the front line? Saving souls. There's so many lost souls. Isn't there enough work just to do that? So going to church is not the end goal. Hmm. But some will propose that, you know, after all, the early church was quote-unquote over with, which doesn't make any sense if they know anything about the history of the church, that then it could focus somehow on maturing itself, that the church needed to, quote, mature itself somehow, whatever that means. If that so-called maturing of the church implies intellectualism, then it's the garbage that advocates, or the, it's the garbage that advocates of focusing on spiritual maturity pedal, and it leads to bondage. My first challenge to that kind of thinking is, what does maturing the church even mean outside the Great Commission? What does that even mean? In other words, <laughs> this is what the Spirit's been challenging all of you with all night. If you're going to use the phrase of spiritual maturity or maturing spiritually, however you'd like to do it, and then you also expand it to the, include the big church, all right, the church is going to mature somehow. What does that mean outside the Great Commission? What does it actually mean? Consider the fact that the last book in the Bible was the book of Revelation, the last book written, which was written by the Apostle John around A.D. 95, somewhere between 94 and 96, let's say. Okay? One has to accept that the church was still very young and had a lot of evangelizing to do. Add to your thoughts now the simply stated scripture up here on the board. <clears throat> Just synthesize a little bit. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Okay? That means he's never changed. He was him before he was incarnated. His thoughts, his doctrines, his heart was him before the Bible, humanity, any of it was even created. 1 Corinthians 2.16, For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Okay. So let me just do a little synthesizing for you and a little concluding. Doctrines don't mature. People do. Doctrines don't mature. People do. So, the church... It, I've said this from the pulpit, and shoot me if I ever do this. If I ever come behind this pulpit and I go, I just noticed something. A new doctrine that no one I have ever read before has ever even thought of. Oh. If I ever do that, you run. <laughs> Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. And if it took 2,000 plus years for little old Pastor Ed Collins in North Christian Church to, to make some great, great revelation about Scripture, some new doctrine that just got discovered, something's wrong. What about all the poor souls who didn't have it?
Doctrines don't mature. Jesus' mind, same yesterday, today, and forever, has never changed about any of this. Does that make sense? His doctrines have never changed, ever. So our objective is not to hyper-doctrinalize. This doctrine, this doctrine, this doctrine, put them together. Okay, I'm dead. But because of technology, I'm leaving it to the next guy. Look at this, reams of, oh yeah, I'm going to take that doctrine, this doctrine, and I'm going to make another one. Before you know it, you've got a transformer. Right? This huge beast. And then nobody, everybody's up here like, oh, these are the greatest prolific statements from this awesome pastor guy. This pastor guy. Man, he's brilliant. Look at, it, look at him. He's like multisyllabic. It's incredible. This dude's like a genius. Maybe I'll go start a seminary and teach other little geniuses. What the hell? Seriously? You really think that's what this is about? You really think it's about standing on other men or standing on the gospel? Doctrines don't change. Doctrines don't mature. People do. The church isn't responsible for seeing to it that Christ's doctrines are matured. <laughs> what a joke. His doctrines preexisted humanity. Don't believe me? Read John 1.1. Paul and the other apostles wrote about confirming and defending the gospel, Allah, Philippians 1.7, not maturing it somehow, or suggesting their disciples progress it further through determination and striving. The church isn't responsible for seeing to it that Christ's doctrines are matured. His doctrines preexisted humanity, John 1, 1. Paul and the other apostles wrote about confirming and defending the gospel, not maturing it somehow, or suggesting their disciples progress it further somehow through determination or striving. When Paul says, I fought the good fight, when he says, I want you to grow up in Christ Jesus, he's talking about learning these things. Because you're so ridiculously distracted by your own flesh, you've got to get the heck out of your own way. That's what it means to grow up. Jesus said, be like a child. Because as you grew up, you learned all this garbage. And we with technology, right? God, God knows it. We learn more. It's like packed on. All these doctrines of demons. Half the work is just getting rid of that stuff. Going back to be, having the faith of a child. That's what it means to grow up. I think you said something like that on Tuesday, Scott. <laughs> Growing up, literally, God's ways are not our ways. Growing up, like Jesus said, is actually being more like a child. Growing up doesn't mean being promoted at, the, at the, the, the dinner table to the head of the table. It means getting down on your knees and washing people's feet. That's what growing up means. It's not about personal promotion. It's about servanthood. But if I know more doctrines, then I get promoted, even in the church. Yeah, you're in a jackass church that's taken something beautiful and destroyed it. But I'm going to have crowns in heaven, and maybe I'll invite you to my dinner table, because I'll be the one at the head. Really? Where's Jesus going to sit? Jesus will be washing feet, right? 
It's incredible. It's incredible what man can do to the gospel. Just to continue this thread a little bit further. Again, we're just working out preemptive strikes here. The completed canon around A.D. 95, Revelation, roughly, last book written. If the church was so mature by then, then why were the apostles still fighting the exact same battles? Their opposition may have been more mature, but the gospel given was already fully matured. The true church wasn't somehow more mature mature by doctrinal standards. It may have been expanding, but the doctrines didn't somehow mature. In other words, there was no progression even. So you look, you fast forward, you go all to the end of the Bible. Okay, the last book written in the, the completed canon. What do we see? The same fight. Different way. The same fight. Read uh, 1 John was written in the 90s, I believe, as well. John at the end of his life. What was he fighting now? The Gnostics who are trying to take credit for themselves, who are mangling the gospel, infiltrating the churches, trying to rout out grace, trying to say that Jesus Christ wasn't even, was some demigod or whatever, doing all these kind of things to just distract people from, guess what? The gospel! They position themselves as spiritually mature. They position themselves as being in the know. They enticed human flesh to come with them as a, with a seat at the head of the table. And John, John's going, no! No! Don't fall prey to that garbage. It's simple. It's the gospel. Don't lose sight of the gospel. It's very simple. But the Gnostics over here say, the Judaizers say, yeah, no kidding. So even at the end of the completed canon, the church wasn't like somehow more mature by doctrinal standards. It may have gotten bigger in that sense. You could say it was more mature. Maybe it was bigger, you know, spreading a little bit, you know. But the doctrines, they didn't mature. It was the same gospel. If anything, the enemies matured because the gospel had been around longer. So the enemies got more crafty. Give man enough time, he's a great inventor. Read Romans 1, speculative, in the flesh. He's a great inventor. Give man long enough to look at a problem, he'll invent a bazillion different ways to try to undermine it. So all of this, it may sound like I'm you know, getting a little bit over the top of this, but I'm not. I'm fighting for you. All of this has everything to do with experiential sanctification because if you don't understand why you're here properly, then your spiritual compass is off. Which means that you'll be off running in the wrong direction. Even if it's just a little off. You have a magnet, or you take a compass, right? You take any kind of magnet of any size, you just bring, you know, there it is, point at, at true north, right? Here, all of a sudden, Right? You get even close to false doctrines, all of a sudden your spiritual compass starts going, right? Oh, but it's only just a TV show called The Big Bang Theory. 
It's only reruns of South Park. It's only Family Guy. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's not a pure science. It's, it's a, you know, it's like magnets. Like, that's why I use the compass example. You can be influenced off of True North. You don't be going def- dead south, but you might be going, you know, 10 degrees instead of zero. For a time, next thing you know, and you know, you go 20 years, and the distance between where you're supposed to be or where you could be and where you are get greater and greater the longer you stay in that vector. So all of this has everything to do with experiential sanctification because if you start listening to false doctrines, start associating even with the wrong people, I mean, look at how the apostles said, listen, if, look, if you're friends of the world, you're an enemy of God. You, look it, there's no fellowship with these people. But I like them. No, your flesh likes them. But if you love them, your whole preoccupation would be with the gospel. Not with becoming like them. Not with playing their game. Are you kidding me? What do you think the apostles fought for? Every angle. So I love how the Spirit, and I'm just about out of time, I love how the Spirit brought out this very topic on Tuesday by pointing out the multitude of passages that reveal the dynamic in the early church, especially as it was being founded by Christ himself. His disciples' spiritual compasses were constantly being affected by counterfeit influences, just like a real compass can be influenced by a magnet that comes close to it that's what false doctrines do. For example, go to Mark 10.13. Go there quickly. I just want to show you one more thing and then I've got to close. Mark 10.13. Think about what the apostles thought. Think about what the Bible is written about. Think about the context. Think about the times. Think about the culture even for what you know of it. The historical setting. All those kinds of things. Mark 10, 13. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. That is ridiculous. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. It means grieved much in the original. He said, whoa, that bothered Jesus a lot. That his own disciples were rebuking the parents, let's say, for bringing children to Jesus. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Again, his disciples' spiritual compasses were constantly being affected by counterfeit influences. You can almost see what was going on. No, this is the Messiah. He, has to, he can't be messing around with like kid things. Are you kidding? One of the things I love the most about the setup of this church is that I get to come out and see kids before I come to the pulpit. To me, that's encouraging. Right? Sam's kid over there running around, coloring, talking now. Right? Are the Frederick kids here tonight? Yeah. Where is it? Oh, she in the mother's room? Yeah, you got the Frederick's kids in there. I mean, this is awesome. These are young kids that 
don't have our problems as adults. Haven't been through the ringer yet. Haven't got on a patchwork of doctrines of demons sown to us. And our flesh is like, I'm not letting these go. You tell them something from the Bible, they go, okay. Mm-hmm. Sounds good to me. I love Jesus too. We go, I love Jesus too, but I'd love him more. What? If he just answered my prayers once in a while. <laughs> Kids don't have that problem. Anyways. Go to Luke 9.46. I want to show you something quickly. Luke 9.46. So his disciples... Now think about that. They spent all their time with Jesus. And they still had these basic problems. Now what do you think? What do you think about the church then? What do you think about the history of the church? Don't you think these basic problems of what have existed in the Great Commission is enough of a commission? Than to try to, quote unquote, make everyone spiritual giants? As an end goal? Mm. Luke 9.46, an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. Now, I ask you to read that whole passage tonight or this weekend. But it's the funniest thing. Given the context, right? Who's the greatest? Okay, and just so you don't think that was like a one-time event, go to Luke 22.24. Luke 22.24. You guys are, these guys are hilarious, right? Because you're the same way. You come into church, which one? All right, who's the greatest? Luke twenty two twenty four. And there arose a dispute, also a dispute among them, as to which one of them was regarded to the greatest, to be the greatest. There it is again. This isn't like a one-time event, my friends. These were the apostles, and they had this problem. Jesus, in other words, Jesus' job was to mature them in such a way that all they focused on was the gospel and the Great Commission. And stop worrying about being the greatest. (laughs) Right? So you want to talk about maturity? All right, here's where I'll close, I promise. Maturity in Jesus' mind was opposite from his disciples' mind. There are multiple examples of Jesus having to readjust his disciples. Mark 10, 13 to 16, Luke 9, 46 to 48, 22, 24 to 30, etc., etc., etc. Yeah. And then I'll give you this. The most mature people in any church are the greatest servants. Mark 10, 45. Jesus said that. You want to be the greatest? Be a servant. You want to know who's the greatest in here? And I'm not going to, don't, don't even look at me. And say, I'm saying, I'm, I'm suggesting that. If there even is such a thing. I think Jesus was just using their own world, words to prove a point. The most mature people in any church are the greatest servants. Mark 10.45 Look at your own heart and your desire to serve others rather than self. And consider your deeds even. Luke 21, 1-4, that's the widow's might. And then 2 Corinthians 8.12, which talks about the readiness being present. I guess I'll have to wait on that one until... Sunday. So we talk an awful lot about maturity this evening. What the Spirit's saying is it's okay. We do know that we grow up. We know that we mature in the faith. But what does that mean to you? Is it what you maybe thought it was? 
Is it what your flesh wants it to be? Or it has everything to do with the gospel and the great commission on your life? Amen? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.